0: Daniel chapter 5, what we are looking at is the story of Daniel with the new king. In the previous chapter, Daniel uh, encountered a king that he had dealt with for many, many years, many decades actually. And in Daniel chapter 4, we learned that God brought down a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar had an issue with pride. Nebuchadnezzar was a, um, a very, very stubborn and proud and angry king. And God eventually had to humble him. God gave him a depraved mind to the point that Nebuchadnezzar actually lived like an animal, lived like a cow, out in the field eating grass uh, from the field. Because Nebuchadnezzar had to learn a lesson that eventually he did learn. And what was proclaimed to him was that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. He needed to understand that his high position was not due to his um, great skills, it was not due to his great leadership, but it was simply due to the fact that God had appointed him to be ruler over that kingdom and many other kingdoms, in fact, for that period of time. And so Nebuchadnezzar eventually learned this lesson. And God restored his health and his mind to him, and he ended up praising the Most High God. This is what Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. He said, But at the end of that period I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will and the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. And so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And so in this passage of scripture, Nebuchadnezzar uh, finds himself restored to his kingdom. Well, 30 years later, and about five Babylonian kings later, we catch up with Daniel in chapter 5. In verse 1 of chapter 5, there's a new king. His name is Belshazzar. Belshazzar the king, verse 1 says, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Notice this word thousand is repeated. It's very much emphasized that this is a huge crowd. He's invited everyone. All of the uh, A1 list is there in the banquet hall And what's most important and what's most striking is that the king is actually drinking and eating with them. That's unusual. Usually if there's even a great party, everyone will be invited. They'll be in the banquet hall, but the king will be reserved with his closest friends and the most high up in society in a smaller room elsewhere. But Belshazzar was seen with everyone. Why? He wanted to show off. He wanted to uh, let everyone know this is his party, this is his kingdom now. And so he's showing off in front of everyone. We read in verse 2, When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. And so in verse 2, we understand what he's doing. He takes all of these uh, all of these vessels that are in uh, this other area reserved in storage that Nebuchadnezzar it says his father, this really means his ancestor. Nebuchadnezzar was many years before, many generations before, in fact. So Belshazzar takes all of these holy vessels from the very um, temple of God and he brings them out and he's going to eat from them he's going to drink from them we learn in Ezra chapter 1 verse 11 that there were over 5000 of these vessels 5400 of these vessels and so he brings them all out and Nebuchadnezzar his ancestor had placed them in the treasury but Belshazzar wants them all out and he wants to take all of Nebuchadnezzar's sins to the next level Belshazzar wants to mock the god of Israel He's going to eat from these vessels. He's going to drink from these vessels. And you sort of wonder if you were reading the story for the first time, would there be anyone in this party of a thousand people, anyone of a thousand who might say to the king, King Belshazzar, this is not a wise move. But no one does. Everyone just goes right along with the king. And certainly it's understandable why, because he might have them put to death if he was rebuked by others. No one dares tell him that this is not a good idea to mock the God of Israel. And so we read in verse 3, Then they brought the gold vessels that they had taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. In verse 3, there's a little word that's added, a phrase that's added actually. Not only were these vessels taken out of the temple, but the narrator tells us that they were taken, this temple is from the house of God. And so it's very clear that King Belshazzar is mocking God. He's thumbing his nose, he's spitting in God's face, if you will. And so he's going to drink and eat from these vessels, not only to mock God, but to praise God the Babylonian gods, with God's holy vessels. Look at verse 4. We read, They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They took the holy vessels of God, and they drank from them, which is an offense enough, but then they praised false gods, dead gods, gods of gold, silver, Bronze, iron, wood, and stone. You find this phrase repeated later in the story. The narrator's letting us know that these gods are dead. They're not like the living God. These are false gods made up in people's minds. These gods are powerless. And so all these people, these thousand people with the king, Belshazzar, they're mocking the living God and instead praising dead powerless gods. They're essentially challenging Israel's God to maintain his honor. What will God do about it? What can He do about it, they think? They think that God cannot do anything about it. You know, this story reminds me of another time when the holy objects of God were mishandled. And it's when uh, King David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant uh, back into Jerusalem, to Jerusalem where it belonged. And so he, um, he told his, um, all the priests there that that's what he wanted to do. And the priest took the Ark of the Covenant And instead of carrying it themselves by touching the poles that were extended through the Ark of the Covenant, which is what they should have done, they instead loaded it on top of an oxen. And it was pulled, essentially, by a a number of oxen. They put, uh, put it on a cart, and one of the oxen stumbled, and the Ark of the Covenant began to fall. And if the Ark of the Covenant had fallen to the ground, that actually would have been okay. Because God made the ground. But what happened was a man named Uzzah took his hand and he steadied the Ark of the Covenant so that it would not fall. See, the ground was not unholy, but Uzzah's hand was. And right then and there, God struck Uzzah down. And it shook up the whole party. No one knew what to do about this. And I think this story reminds me of that because if God is so holy that he will strike down one of his own servants who mishandles the vessels that are declared to be solely for God and for holy purposes, then what will God do to these pagans who are using the vessels to mock the very name of God and the power of God? We read in verse 5, here's what God does. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. What's God going to do about being mocked? He'll deal with it himself. And so this written response was from God. It was God's response to Belshazzar's challenge. And God makes sure that he writes this on the wall, opposite of the lampstand. In other words, for the wall is brightest, so that Belshazzar can make no mistake what's going on. We read in verse six. Then the king's face grew pale, and his hips, or, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. Literally, this verse says the knots of his loins were loosened. In other words, he most likely got so scared that he soiled himself right in front of his thousand most important friends. He doesn't know what this means what these words on the wall mean for him, but he knows this is not a good sign. And so, what's he going to do? Verse 7, The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me So be clothed with purple, which is a royal color, and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler of the kingdom. And so he brings in all the wise men, certainly all the Chaldeans with all of their magician's books that we know they had uh, and all of their collective wisdom, certainly they can interpret this. And whoever can interpret this will become the third ruler in the kingdom. That's weird. Why the third ruler? Let me tell you. Back in the 1800s, the uh, unbelieving Old Testament scholars, um, they said, "There's no extra biblical evidence of Belshazzar. There's no extra biblical evidence of Nebuchadnezzar. These are just stories. These are fictional stories that that uh, Jewish parents and rabbis would tell the children. These are just myths." These things, these people really didn't exist because there's no references, they thought, outside of Scripture and extra-scriptural references that are based on Scripture that reference these people. Well, then ultimately, uh, back in the 1800s, Belshazzar's name was discovered as a king of Babylon. And you know what it was also discovered? It was also discovered that his father, Nabonidus, was also a king at the same time. In fact, it was discovered that Nabonidus at this time lived 500 miles south of Babylon, and he had set up his own son, Belshazzar, as a co-regent. And so when we read in this scripture, the Belshazzar said, whoever can interpret this will be number three in the kingdom. Now we know why. Because daddy was first, and he was second. Once again, the Bible is proven not only to be true, but also incredibly accurate. And so we read in verses 8 and 9, All the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Now, Jewish tradition says that the reason the king couldn't read the text was because the text was written vertically instead of horizontally. Centuries later, Rembrandt would paint a painting uh, called Belshazzar's Feast, and he carried on this tradition that the text was written vertically, and that's why uh, Belshazzar could not interpret it. But there's a more, I think, a more logical explanation of what went on. See, more likely it's because Hebrew, like Aramaic, in fact, at that time, used only consonants. There were no vowels that were written down in Hebrew. Vowels had to be put in. In fact, when Hebrew was written, it was written with no spaces in between the words. You'd have to supply your own vowels and your own spaces to determine what the words meant. So what vowels do you supply? And, and what, uh, where, do you, where does one word begin and where does the next one end? I mean, you can probably imagine how difficult this would be. Uh, think about this. Let's, take, let's do a little puzzle here. What do you think uh, this, this phrase means? What do you think these words stand for? I mean, what's the first word? Is it pond? Is it panda? Pound? Pain? Pained? Is it open? Opened? What could it be? And you can see how perplexed the king might be if he couldn't figure out these things. Much less, even if he could figure out the words, what does the interpretation mean? And so in verses uh, 10 and following, we read the queen, entered and he, the queen entered the banquet hall. By the way, the queen is probably the, the queen mother. It's his mama. It's Nabonidus' wife. Why do we know that? Because he was eating with all of his wives and his concubines and everybody else. And so now the queen mother, mama comes in. Mom's going to tell them what to do. She comes in uninvited, and she speaks to the king uninvited. So this woman had some authority. She may not be one or two in the kingdom, but everyone knew where she stood in things. So the queen mother comes in, and she entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. By the way, I will always want my children to address me that way. Anyway, do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face. Be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge. And insight, interpretation of dreams, and explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. She says, "Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation." Daniel was taken to Babylon as a teenager. He's in his 80s now, most likely. He's an old man. What could an old Jewish man offer the king? Can you imagine how frustrated Belshazzar had to be? He throws this humongous party. It had to cost him a fortune. He throws a big party so that he can mock the God of Israel. And now he's soiled himself, and he has to rely on an old Jewish man for help? How humbled he must be. He calls Daniel in, but he has utter disdain for Daniel. Listen to how he phrases this in verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? He repeats it two times. Verse fourteen. He continues, "Now I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you." Do you notice something that he calls Daniel's spirit a spirit of the gods? But his mother, the queen mother, said it is a spirit of the holy gods. Now her theology wasn't all that good, but it was a little better than his. At least she said that this is the spirit of the holy gods that is in Daniel. He says again in verse 14, Now I've heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Verse 15, Now uh, just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able... He, he told him twice. He told Daniel twice, I've heard this about you. In other words, Belshazzar saying, I don't believe it. I don't believe what my mom told me. Verse 16 says, but I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, And you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Well, how's Daniel going to respond to this? I think a lot of us, if we were in Daniel's shoes, we'd look at this and say, man, this is a golden opportunity. There's a way to work my way up into a promotion. Third ruler over the entire kingdom. But Daniel, he's not happy about the king's sacrilege. In fact, he may be unhappy with how he himself has been treated. Daniel begins to respond in verse 17. Daniel answered, and he said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. He's telling the king off. He's basically saying, I'm not going to receive your gifts. I'm not interested in your gifts. Daniel does not want to be beholden to the king. If, if the king blessed Daniel, then Daniel would then behold, be beholden to him. Daniel continues in verse 17. He says, However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him all the peoples nations and men of every language feared and trembled before him whomever he wished he killed and whomever he wished he spared alive and whomever he wished he elevated and whomever he wished he humbled but when his heart when nebuchadnezzar's heart was so lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him he was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was that of with the wild donkeys and he was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the most high god is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets it over he sets over it whomever he wishes. Daniel helps Belshazzar remember his history. How Nebuchadnezzar's ancestor had been punished by God for his arrogance. And now it's time for Belshazzar to receive a message from God. Verse 22. Yet you, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this but you have exalted yourself against the lord of heaven and they have brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your nobles your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. Daniel lets him have it. Maybe he says, I'm just an old man, I'm near the end of my life anyway, I'm going to go for it. Or maybe Daniel is just simply righteously angry at the king for mocking his God. Let me ask you a question. When you see people in our society, you hear people in our society, they mock Jesus Christ. How does that make you feel? It hurts. Maybe it makes you angry. We need to not respond and and vicious anger toward people that are foolish like that. But it hurts because they don't understand that Jesus is not a cuss word. They don't understand that Jesus is our best friend. He's someone we love. And so, yeah, I guess it's human to get angry when someone hurts someone you love, or at least tries to. Daniel's not pleased with Belshazzar. He lets him have it, if you will. And the king himself, he has no fear of God in his heart. None whatsoever. Scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Belshazzar is a fool because he's mocking the one who can kill him and who can destroy him and take away his kingdom. Only a fool would do that. We read in verse 24. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now, this is the inscription that was written out Mene, Mene, Tekel, of Afarsan, rather. Three words Mene, Tekel, and a parson. What is this? What do these mean? These three words stand for different weights used on a balancing scale. Minae stands for a mina. A mina was a heavy weight, weighed about 500 grams. God repeats it for emphasis. Takel stood for shekel, which is a small weight of only 10 grams. A parson is a half mina, 250 grams. So in other words, these are three weights that are weighed in the balance. Do you remember our puzzle that I put on the screen earlier? It'd be as if these were the words. A pound, an ounce, and a half pound. And so the king understands what the words mean. But what's the interpretation stand for? Verse 26. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. We still use some phrases from this story. The writings on the wall, that comes from this story. His days are numbered, that comes from this story. God says to the king, Belshazzar, your days are numbered. Verse 27 to Kel means you have been weighed in on the scales and found deficient. It's as if God is saying, here's a huge mina on one side. And you are nothing but a shekel. And you are deficient. You've been found deficient. And so the judgment is coming. Verse 28, Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar's standards are too low. Belshazzar doesn't measure up. He's not basically just in his heart. He's not righteous in his heart. In fact, not only is he unrighteous in his heart, but he tried to actively dishonor God. And so, the writing's on the wall. Babylon has fallen. It's just a matter of time. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave orders. And they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third in the kingdom, the third ruler in the kingdom. So at least the king made good on his promise. Verse 30. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, the Babylonian king, was slain. That very night, the army of the Medes and the Persians came in. Belshazzar thought he was safe. Why do you think he was saved? Because he's there in the capital city. If you looked at a, capital, a, a map of that capital city, you would see the great Tigris River on one side, the great Euphrates River on the other side. And there he is. He's, he's safe from the Medes and the Persians. They're way down in Iran. They're not going to be able to get him. They're not going to be able to cross that river. They can't get into his, his, uh, his kingdom with an outer wall, an inner wall inside the capital city. He thought he was safe from the rivers. In fact... We've learned now that the waters of the Euphrates actually flowed in under the walls of the city of Babylon, that capital city there. But extra-biblical sources tell us what happened. We know now that the Medo-Persian army, they diverted water from the Euphrates River into a large marsh in that area. And when the water got down low enough, the army of the the Medes and Persians walked in in the shallow water under the walls, following the river, they came right into the city. No one thought they could do it. They did it by diverting the river. They went into the palace and they killed Belshazzar that very night and they destroyed the kingdom of Babylon. By the way, do you know what the word Belshazzar means? It means, O oh, Bel. Bel is the greatest god in all of the, pan, all of the uh, pantheon of gods that the Babylonians had. He was their top god. So he was named after the top god. Belshazzar means, O oh, Bel, protect the king. His very name meant protect me. He put all of his trust into a dead god. A false god made of gold and silver and wood and stone. And he was trusting this dead god to protect him. The dead god couldn't. The greatest god of all the Babylonians could not protect him. Belshazzar should have listened to his ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar, read again what he said in verse 37 of chapter 4. He said, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the kingdom of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just. Nebuchadnezzar, generations before, warned Belshazzar. And he said, He is able to humble those who walk in pride. He should have listened to his granddaddy. should have listened to his ancestors. Verse 31, So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. There's a new king in town, It's Darius, sometimes called Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians. Again, what was it that Nebuchadnezzar said in verse 32 of chapter 4? He said, "...the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes." This scene of chapter 5, it's a courtroom scene. One of the great movies of all time, 12 Angry Men. Where these men are sitting in the courtroom or in the, in the jury box. They're trying to, trying to pass judgment whether a man is guilty or innocent of a crime. Here we have a courtroom scene. This entire chapter is, God has charged Belshazzar with a crime. That crime has been committed. The sentence is written on the wall. Daniel himself is the prosecuting attorney. He brings all of the evidence. He recounts all the lessons that Nebuchadnezzar learned. And he declares, you, Belshazzar, you've forgotten everything that you should have remembered. And once everyone understands the writing on the wall, the punishment is carried out quickly. Today... I'm asking you to consider what God has done in history. And I'm asking you to consider our own day. Is God doing a similar thing today? One of the reasons that God judges a nation is to advance the cause of his kingdom. Back in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, you have the first tyrant In all of human history, a man by the name of Nimrod, who wants to build this great tower up to God, become equal with God, in fact. But what did God do? God confused and scattered the disobedient people to diminish the tyrannical power of Nimrod. But what happened as a result of that in chapter 11? It led directly to God's call of Abraham and Sarah to come to the promised land and to become parents, the parents of Israel. When Israel later became unfaithful, what did God do? God sent Israel into exile to Babylon. And when God eventually judged the last Babylonian king, as we've seen here, this set the stage for a remnant of Israel to return to the promised land. And they would rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They eventually would rebuild the temple of the Lord. And in the fullness of time, God brought forth the Savior. He brought forth a Savior for mankind from this very nation called Israel, who could have been destroyed, should have been destroyed from human eyes many times over, but God's hand was on them, and God protected them. Even though God punished them, God was working his salvation out through them, the salvation that you and I inherit. And so this Savior for mankind, Jesus, brought forth his ministry opened his ministry with these words that the kingdom of God has come. He proclaimed the arrival of God's kingdom the same kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about which would be a stone rolling down from the mountain uncarved by human hands and destroying all the kingdoms of the earth. The kingdom Jesus proclaimed is a spiritual kingdom and not yet a physical one. It will be. It will be upon His return. All of the nations of the world will eventually come to an end. When the Son of God returns, this is what Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But each in his own order. Christ, the fruits, talking about the resurrection. After that, those who are Christ at His, king, at his coming. Then comes the end. When Christ hands over the kingdom to to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he put all of his enemies under his feet, Jesus will reign until all of the kingdoms of the world are destroyed. And once there's only the kingdom of God that remains, Jesus takes the kingdom of God and he hands it over to the Father as a gift. And he says to God the Father, this is what I've done for you. What an incredible story of love that God would love us so much that he sent his son into this world to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have eternal life and that we could reign in the kingdom of God with Christ and one day we will be a part of that offering that Christ gives to the father we'll be a part of that kingdom scripture says in revelation chapter 11 verse 15 the kingdom of this of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever you know there's only in the end one of two places that you're going to be you're going to be with God and his kingdom or you're going to be separated from God for all eternity God loves you so much he doesn't want that second choice to be what you choose he wants you to have the opportunity and to take the opportunity to avail yourself of the salvation that God alone can offer. His offer is this. You take all of your sin, all of your disobedience, all of your mess, all of your guilt, all of your shame, and you allow Christ to have it. Jesus died on the cross To pay for all of that. And in return, you will get the righteousness of Christ. You'll get the joy of the Lord. You'll get eternity with God. And to me, that sounds like a deal worth taking. What it requires of you is a willingness to follow Him now and every day.